This is episode 106 of the Rising Man podcast with Seth Bernard. Water is life. Greetings and good day to you, fam. My name is Jetty Azuma, your host and the creator of the Rising Man movement. This podcast is about examining what modern manhood is and providing men with what they need to become the men they've always wanted to be. If you're looking to get more involved with the Rising Man movement, be sure to go to risingman.org. All Rising Man content, events, and information will now be housed here. Yes, that includes podcast downloads and information, including links to all the content we have up on our brand new YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the Rising Man movement. Go check it out. If you're a man without a men's circle, then wait no longer. Join the Rising Man Fire Circle for just $67 a month. You get access to your own men's team, monthly training calls with me, guest presenters from all over the world, and so much more. This is a no-brainer, fellas. If you don't have a circle of men, you're missing a critical element in your life. And if you're feeling the call to ceremonially mark your passage into manhood, to clarify your purpose, your reason for living, and create lifelong brotherhood with nine other men, then make sure you apply to be a part of our four-day vision fast called Compass. All information and links to apply for that are on our website at risingman.org. Just click the link, the segment of that page that says initiations. Okay, let me introduce my guest for today. Seth Bernard was born and raised on Earthwork Farm in rural northern Michigan. Seth was brought up in the folk and farmstead culture. In 2001, Seth founded Earthwork Music, a renowned Michigan-based collective of successful independent musicians who focus their efforts on environmental advocacy, social justice, creative empowerment, and community building. Seth traveled the world and blanketed the U.S. as a magnetic performer and uplifting cultural worker. He served as the director of musical ambassador program for On the Ground, where he helped cultivate partnerships and cultural exchanges between communities in southern Mexico, Ethiopia, and eastern Congo and communities in Michigan with a focus on solidarity and creative collaboration. He is a NMEAC Environmentalist of the Year Award winner for arts education and has worked with SEEDS, that's an acronym S-E-E-D-S, and on stage for kids bringing nature-based experiential creative empowerment to young people across the Great Lakes region and beyond. In early 2018, Bernard launched the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan social movement using storytelling and music to amplify the groundswell of support for water issues. Seth is a prolific songwriter and recording artist with 12 solo albums and a dozen more collaborative projects in his catalog. He's won eight Jammy Awards as a recording artist and producer and has been a longtime iconic leader and steward of Michigan's music community. His newest work, Egg Tones, is a four album series released over the last two years to critical acclaim. In this episode, Seth and I discuss the difference between a boy and a man. A boy climbs the mountain hoping everyone notices, while the man climbs to gain greater perspective. I love that definition. Why is it important to advocate on behalf of the environment? We talked about the importance of healthy, functioning ecosystems, how Seth learned the meaning of water being conscious. We talked about the definition of fascism, which is the merging of state and corporate powers and what that really looks like in a modern world. The lack of environmental regulations surrounding clean water, why Seth identifies as a recovering colonizer, and how even your well-intentioned action might end up damaging, and that this is also part of the learning process. Without further ado, Seth Bernard. All right, all you rising men out there, get ready, because I got another powerful brother stepping up to the mic to share his wisdom with us today. My bro, Seth Bernard, coming in from Michigan. Uh, what was it? Tra- Traverse Traverse City? Traverse City, yes. Thank you, Jetty. An honor to join you here. Yes, man. So good to have you here, man. As a 
as a musician, as a environmental advocate, social justice advocate, a guy out there, in my opinion, really on the front lines of some of the most important work of our generation. I'm just delighted and excited to see what kind of brilliance you have to share with us today, my man. Thank you. And thank you for your work. It's an honor to be here and to be of service in some way. So thanks to everybody out there listening for, for doing your work and, and being part of this vehicle of inquiry. Yes, a vehicle of inquiry. I like that. I'm going to start using that. <laughs> All right, man. So let's let's start off where we always start in these conversations. I'm going to ask you this question. What is the difference between a boy and a man? Mm, I think about William Blake in terms of innocence and experience. I also think about the word responsibility. One of my heroes who I got to be friends with, Richie Havens, broke that word down to the ability to respond. I think about this all the time. So a man has the ability to respond. A boy is climbing that mountain and, and hoping that everybody notices. And a man has climbed the mountain and, and has a vantage point where he can see and, and serve the highest good. It's a constant process. Maybe it's more like a fjord or a ledge that we get to. But I, I do think the boy is alive in the man. And I can remember times of being a boy and, and being able to sort of tap into my elderhood and tap into even a little bit of ancestorhood. They're not totally mutually exclusive. A man has, has an enormous responsibility and has come into the understanding that we have servant leadership to do here and we have to serve the highest good with the energy that we have. Mm. I love that. I love breaking down the word responsibility to the ability to respond. Mm. I think that that paints such a clear portrait and profile of a man that I hold near and dear to my heart. So I, mm. I'm glad that you share that. And also, I think it's a great leverage point to start speaking about what's on your heart. Mm. Where, where are you choosing to respond with this mission that you have in your life as a man? I know that, I know that you're a musician. I know that you've done a lot of advocacy and activism with your music and creating communities. So let me ask you this. Why is it so important for us to advocate on behalf of the environment right now? Mm. I think that it's an interesting conversation to have. And I have this conversation all the time, Jetty, with all different kinds of people. You know, it's mm -hmm. uh, I, I hosted a, a delegation of dignitaries from my ancestral homeland of Armenia in my home last night and some good friends who are natives. We're in leadership here locally, part of the Grand Traverse Band, Anishinaabe people came and visited and, and we talked about what it means to be a water protector, what it means to be an earth guardian. It's worth noting that, you know, ecosystem function is basically the, the bottom line for, for life on earth. If we want to do anything, if we want to continue to have debates about the environment or anything else, we have to have healthy functioning ecosystems. And so ecosystem function is vastly more valuable than the production and distribution of goods and services is a quote that I use sometimes from Dr. John Liu. Mm. Also, we're, we're a part of nature. We are of the earth. This is our home. It is a fundamental duty to honor the earth and a privilege. It really comes down to the core of who we are as human beings, as earthlings on the planet. Obviously, we've been born into a time and a societal construction that sometimes distracts us from that. And we're, we're focused on things like status and consumption 
consumption and we're overwhelmed with busyness. And I think being generally busy has even escalated to being super busy. I hear so many people talk about how they're super busy. How you doing? Well, I'm super busy, you know, <laughs> and, and a lot of people are super busy doing really meaningful stuff. I lately have tried to be more mindful about saying maybe I'm taking a lot on, but try not to be super busy because I try to be present. Like right here, this is one of the things I'm doing today and I'm so grateful to be doing it. And I want to be present with you. I don't want to be too busy to show up right here, right now. Mm. And so in finding presence, we find meaning and we don't have to reach for something else to be satisfied. And in that sort of space, we feel more of a sense of belonging on earth. Obviously, we need water to survive. And so a lot of my work around water really gets at you know, the fundamental element for life itself and, and how it really does connect us to need water and to be made of water and to, to understand how precious water is. I got mm. into a conversation yesterday, just to go a little further into your question, with an old friend of mine that I went to school with, and he was debating me on social media about the way that our government subsidizes the fossil fuel industry. And a lot of times, if you stand up for the environment, people will say that you're a hypocrite because you drive a car or you know, you're basically born into the system and functioning within it. And so that to me is, it's just kind of a sign that you're doing your work a lot of times is, is people who don't really have an argument not to try to protect the earth will instead just attack you and say that you're a hypocrite. And it's like, well, right. I don't know what else there is to do other than to stand up for the earth the best way I possibly can and, and to use my lifespan to do it and to take care of myself so that I don't burn out in the process. Yeah, man. <laughs> and I, I want to respond to something there because Without casting aspersions or judgment on any of those people who, yeah. who do exactly what you're saying, yes. to me, that's a deflection of responsibility. Mm -hmm. Coming at somebody and trying to pick them apart and, and deconstruct their message or their, their purpose, especially publicly, to me, is, is, is externalizing where we don't want to take responsibility. Going all the way back to what you said about the difference between a boy and a man, I think that's what a boy does. Classic example mm. Two boys are roughhousing and so one of them ends up on the ground with a bumped elbow. And, in, you know, he's like, well, he did it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he started it. Right. It's, it's finger. It's finger pointing. It's yeah. passing along the responsibility instead of taking ownership of it. Yeah. These are conversations where I learn, too. I learn about my own feelings, my own growth edges, the edges of my circles of compassion. And I'm happy to say, I mean, I've definitely had some of these conversations devolve, but this one went into some, you know, juicy territory about what's important to us, what do we value, mm, you know. Yeah. People consume vastly different types of media these days that makes us feel like we're in these different bubbles of sort of like self-congratulatory or self-reinforcing ideas. But it's it's really, to me, in my, in my process of, of learning how to be in society, and how to work for real social change. I have to ride those edges. I have to ride those <laughs> edges a lot. Yeah, man. That's, that's <laughs> part of being out there on the front lines. Mm. And I'm grateful that you found a way to, to do it and sustain it. I, I, know, I know what it takes to be that type of personality, the one who's, who's willing to stand in your truth and mm. especially around such controversial topics right now. Mm. Thank you for doing that. And I got to admit, you struck a chord in me mm. when you started talking about the busyness. It's, mm. it's so present for me. And I, I'm mm -hmm. just going back in the catalog of my memories, how many times I've responded and told people how busy I am. Mm -hmm. Oh man. Yeah. Th things are great, but I'm super busy, super busy. Like when did that become such a common part of my vernacular? Mm -hmm. And and also just looking at what does that actually mean? Busy. I, I can't help but see the, I'm not great with etymology, 
but I can't help but see the connection between busyness and business. Mm-hmm. Is business, is our version of business have to do with just busy, being busy and busying ourselves? Right. And then, and then man, it was just last night, I, I came back from a week out in the desert mm. bringing guys on a, on a vision quest. Mm. So completely removed, completely detached, totally connected with the rhythms of the stars, of the sun, the moon. And then coming back, I've just been beat because mm. there's so much going on in this mm. in this modern version of a world that we live in and i decided that i don't want to look my great-grandchildren in the eyes and tell them i was too busy to take a stand on on behalf of our planet i was mm. too busy to do my best to protect water to to stand for sustainable resources and i'm calling more of us forward to stand in that space because do you really want to look back and tell the next generations that hey sorry it's too caught up in my own stuff to speak on your behalf, even though you weren't here yet. I don't know, that's, yeah. that's the place that I go with all of it. Oh, aho. I hear that, brother. Yeah, thank you for sharing yeah. that. That's powerful. Yeah, and it's like, it's that dance that we're in of, of participating in society and connecting with people where we're at. I've had a couple different examples in, in my mentors around technology. You know, I've had mentors that really are disconnected from the digital world and social media. And I've had other mentors that are just just ferociously curious about what's coming next with all of that. That's a big part of my process of self-inquiry on a daily basis is the way that I use my phone and my computer. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's definitely a wonderful tool and a a really convenient distraction all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, man. Engineered that way in some respects. Yeah. But the the thing I'm starting to see is that we've got artificial everything, synthetic Mm. everything at this Mm. point, but there's still things that they haven't been able to replicate. You can't, there's no artificial life Mm. as far as I know. Mm -hmm. There's no, there's artificial intelligence maybe, maybe that's what we call it, but there's no artificial life. There's no artificial water. There's no synthetic earth that actually provides what earth or replicates what earth can do for us. And so to me, that's like the last, the last straw, right? We, we can't just keep creating synthetic things anymore. We have to honor what's already here. Yes. There's right. no replacements for that. Mm. You know? So that's my perspective on it. I know that I'd like to migrate into this fight for clean water specifically. Mm-hmm. The teachers that I sit up with, especially indigenous elders, they, they call water the first medicine. Mm. It's the first medicine given to the people and all the efforts that have been going on for the past many years before it even caught media attention, but specifically with Standing Rock and, and all these other, and, and obviously even the, the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, mm-hmm. close to your close to your home. Uh, I'd just like to hear a little bit about how you got involved in that and, and what the fight for clean water has been like for you. Thank you. Yeah. I grew up on a farm called Earthwork Farm. It's about a 45 minute drive from where I live now. And it's my lifetime home base. My parents really took us back to the land, my sisters and I. It was a self-sustaining farm, a bit of a commune, a lot of different people living there. Music was a big part of daily life. Agriculture was a big part of daily life and community service. My mother and my dad met when he was studying wildlife biology and becoming a wildlife biologist and studying forestry. And she was one of the first VISTA volunteers under Bobby Kennedy. And she had grown up in New York and LA and was really interested in social change and service. And Mm. and their paths led them to this farm. And so I I had a lot of ecological awareness growing up. And being in Michigan, we're surrounded by 21% of the world's fresh surface water. 21% is in the Great Lakes Basin. And the Great Lakes are just a world world treasure. We also have 11,000 inland lakes or more. So 
anywhere in Michigan, you don't have to drive any more than seven miles to get to a river, lake, or stream. So just water is everywhere. It's a part of our identity. Yeah. And again, yeah, with my with my elders and my guides, my parents, I have come to understand that, yeah, exactly, water is Water is the first medicine. It is it is life itself. The Anishinaabe people of this re- region not only believe that water is life, but water is alive. Water has its own consciousness. And in the treaties between First Nation people and the federal government, the Native people of this region have a lot of fishing rights. But the way that Native people hold those treaty rights is not to be to have the right to catch a fish. It's to be in relationship with the water. So it's less about stewardship and more about relationship, which I've come to understand from Native friends and teachers. And so it's really so critical to, to center Indigenous people in, in the work of being water protectors. It's a matter of morality and uh, of cultural healing for us living on colonized land that, you know, our country was founded in genocide and indigenous people are still very much here and they have the cultural traditions to to really bring everyone into better relationship with the water and with the earth here in Traverse City there's been this long-term effort called the Boardman River Restoration Project where there have been all of these different agencies every level of government has come together to restore the Boardman River and the tribe has been at the center of it and this has been studied by people all over the world because it was such a success And one of the things that happens is Native people have these cultural traditions that they can bring people in that would normally be maybe debating, you know, some real menial details about policy. But when they have a cultural experience, when they go to the Riverside and are part of a ceremony that's led by Native people, that changes them. It changes their hearts. Hmm. It changes their DNA. It's a meaningful experience of the water. And then they become in relationship with that river and and they're... Hmm part of this process of healing the river that's meaningful and it's part of their own healing process. And this is, right. this is something that has happened in other places in the world as well. So um, that's a, a hyper-local story about, you know, centering indigenous leadership and, and recognizing the sovereignty of tribes as well as sovereign nations within the United States, outside of the United States, but within these colonized yep. lands, you know. But there's so much to say in Michigan. Wow. I mean, the Flint water crisis, you know, rocked the world. The city of Flint has been through so much trauma before the water crisis, many different epidemics with, you know, the scars of industry, with, with the automotive industry being very extractive to the city and leaving. A lot of people look at it as a really an apartheid state between communities of color and white majority communities in Michigan and really in our society in general. The injustices are so structural. You look at access to health care, access to education, access to clean water. Those forms of racism are so stark and, and communities of color and native communities are, are disproportionately affected by environmental degradation and access to clean, affordable drinking water. And so the Flint water crisis was just a very, very obvious example of that in a black majority community. We also saw that in Detroit with the water shutoffs in Benton Harbor, which is also a black majority community in Michigan. And a lot of this was under emergency management, accelerated under subversion of democracy, where elected leaders were fired and emergency managers were appointed and took over city resources. And in many times, in multiple situations, municipal water 
supplies were privatized. And another big case here in Michigan is Nestle has been extracting water, paying $200 a year to extract hundreds of millions of gallons of water at billions of dollars in profit. And $200 a year is their permit. Yeah. And so, you know, this is, this is a, a situation where it's really all of the above. We have to show up and it can be overwhelming to think about this. We have a 66-year-old pipeline running under the Straits of Mackinac right now called Line 5. And this is one of the biggest projects. I, I sometimes like to say project instead of fight. Uh, there's a little bit more mm-hmm. possibility in a project. Yeah. But it's okay. a project to shut down Line 5. And for seven years, we've really been working on this. The company that operates it is a Canadian multinational fossil fuel company called Enbridge. They also run Line 6B, which ruptured in 2010. Is the biggest inland oil spill in U.S. history. A million gallons of heavy crude oil spilled into the Kalamazoo River, southwest Michigan. And people turn their attention to Line 5. It's the same company, and it runs under the Straits of Mackinac. It was put in before the Mackinac Bridge. And so the tribes have been at the center of this fight, but people from all over the state have been working on this project, project. (laughs) And our our new governor and attorney general were elected both largely on the promise to shut down Line 5. And so it's Mm. it's really been pulling back the veil on really the collusion of corporations and elected officials over the years and how... I mean, really, that's what fascism is. It's the merging of state and corporate powers. And it can be a Mm. scary word, but we've seen the merging of state and corporate powers invade the law, which is public trust laws say that water is part of the public commons and that it doesn't belong to anyone. And yet private corporations that have colluded with our state and local and federal governments have violated public trust laws. And people need to get a, get together and show up in so many ways. We need to change laws, ratify constitutions, educate voters, educate candidates show up on the street, empower kids. One of the coolest things that I've been a part of related to the Flint water crisis is this project called RiverQuest, which we joined forces with Girls Rock Flint. And uh, we were in Flint for a week last summer. A few indigenous leaders took kids on kayaking trips on the Flint River, getting back into relationship with the river. And then a few Mm -hmm. of us worked with the kids to facilitate a songwriting process where they wrote songs inspired by the the nature walks and the kayaking trips. And then they've been able to perform the song several times at big festivals and smaller community events. And so it's, nice. it's you know, building that connection with kids. One of our biggest advocates in Michigan state government right now is a friend of mine named Yusef Rabhi. And I interviewed him on my podcast called State of Water. And when he was a preschooler, he did an Adopt-A-Stream program and it, and it changed the course of his life. You know, and here he is now as the Democratic floor leader of Michigan, standing up for the people of Flint and calling for the shutdown of Line 5. And so all of these things wow. matter, you know, showing up for one child matters. And, and again, like I, I go back to my own restoration process, my own relationship with the, the rivers and lakes and streams around me. So well, you, you really I, touched a chord there. <laughs> well, I'm glad that I did because that opened up so much. One of the things that I always speak about mm-hmm. in, in my own discovery is my relationship with the elements. Yeah. Water, earth, air, fire. Mm. And relationship is such a powerful word. I think it's something that all of us want as as humans. And we we don't look at having relationship with all things. I don't look at having a relationship with my desk, mm. you know, because it seems like it's inanimate, like it's not alive. So one of the things you said about 
that the native tribal leaders had taught you is that water is alive. Mm-hmm. And just, just thinking of it that way, that it's a, that it's a living being that we get to be in relationship with is so powerful. Yeah. And I often tell people, especially folks who haven't engaged in relationship with the elements, that it's not that you've been out of relationship with these elements. You can't survive without being out of relationship with these elements. Mm-hmm. You may not know that you're in relationship with these elements. You may not be conscious of it, but you are. You're, you wouldn't be alive if you weren't drinking water. Mm-hmm. And you wash your body with water. And you wash your hands with water. And you use water for all these different things. You walk on the earth that provides all these resources. You cook your food over a fire. <laughs> you know, you breathe air. Literally, these you, you can't not be in relationship with these things. It's the context of and the depth of relationship that we have with these elements that allow us to live and to be here. So mm-hmm. everything you were saying was just mirrored right back at me that, yes, we get to be in relationship. We get to restore relationship with all of these sacred elements, these sacred gifts, starting with the water. Because mm. that's that's one of the biggest projects that we're up to in this lifetime, mm. right? And as also the air. You know, we've yeah. been talking. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid and they were talking about smog. And I was like, what's smog? Mm. You know, I, they were talking about smog in Los Angeles. And I was like, oh, I live in New Jersey. I don't really, I don't, I don't even know where Los Angeles is. Mm. But that seems to me to be the mark of this generation is we've got to be the ones who finally say this is the most important thing that we can do Yeah, is to be in relationship with the land, the earth, the air, the water, the fire, all of it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I just, I, I'm listening to your story and I'm just like, wow. And th- there's so much going on that most of us don't know about. Mm. You talk about being more conscious of this. It's like, Hey, we all get to wake up here and start paying even more attention. You know, leave the judgment off the table, right? We're not, yeah. you're not bad because you didn't know about this stuff. But once you know, you can't not know anymore. Yeah. You get more curious, dig a little bit deeper. And the other part of it that really struck a chord for me is I remember how overwhelming it felt when I first became aware of some of this stuff, like in my early twenties, it buried me. It sunk me. I was like, I I don't even know where to start. I don't even know what I can do about this. It's so painful to see the world in this condition and I'd have no idea what to do. And that was when I like went into my dark night of the soul because I was like, I just seemed hopeless. Mm. But I realized that (laughs) the first place to start was with me internally. And mm. I heard you say you had to, you went on your own process of rebuilding relationship with, with water and all of these things. Mm. I think that's a great place to start. So I, I wonder mm. if you'd speak a little bit more into that for guys out there who are listening and are like, oh man, I get it. I'm so on board. It's, where do I start? Where do I begin? What, mm. are, <laughs> what are some of the first steps for me to create a better relationship with myself and with the things around me? Mm. I really like that you use the word curious, you know, because that general that intrinsic curiosity that we have and keeping that, that boy alive and curious within the man, um, that really is a healthy, like guiding light through all of this. And Mm -hmm. it can help me navigate some of the harder elements of it. I, I, I try to remain fascinated, even if what I'm beholding is very painful and, and excruciating. And there are excruciating injustices that are very hard to look at in the world. But even that, so much to learn and and things are always changing so quickly. But I, I think my mom used to tell me, help the helpers. If you don't know what to do, help the helpers. And there are always people yeah. helping. And there are hundreds of thousands of nonprofit organizations, you know, coalitions, individuals. A lot of these folks need help. 
You know, they need help in a myriad of ways, volunteers, people who want to do a fundraiser. And there are wonderful ways to put a fundraising concert together. I've done this for kind of 20 years straight. Fundraising concerts can be cool. It gives people a gig. It brings organizations together with the community. You're telling a story that's uplifting to people. Hey, these people are coming together to raise awareness and money for this thing, which is happening in our community. And it can be super local. It could be completely global. It could be a combination. Bringing people together to create change is, is a very natural thing for humans to do. Food mm -hmm. and music bring people together in a way that builds and connects us. There's so much that people can do. I think that we want to be coming alive in the process, you know, and using our, our wheelhouses, using the tools in our toolbox while developing more in the process. So I think that, you know, when you identify, I think Bob Dylan said, when you identify an injustice, you're taken to the task of working to fix it, working for justice from then on. Otherwise, you're a part of the problem. I think it, it may have been Desmond Tutu who said, you know, those who are neutral in a, in a situation of oppression are taking the side of the oppressor. So there, there isn't really yeah. neutrality. We have to engage and, and work for justice. And there's a learning process in that whole pursuit, you know. And so I think showing up is, is really big. Showing up, listening, learning showing up curious and, and seeing the way that certain people are going about it. If you look around you, once you start to stoke that curiosity, things start showing up. And it's, it's amazing. It's, yes. it's that way with any type of curiosity. You know, yeah. you get into a mm -hmm. hobby, all of a sudden, other people who are into that hobby just start showing up in your life. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> and it's the same way with activism. I like to think of it as cultural work in a lot of what I do, partly because I'm engaging the arts and also because we're culture creators. You know, we don't just consume culture or participate in a fixed culture. We, we get to create culture and mm. we're creators of the culture of our household, our families, our communities, our region and the planet. The way that the global youth culture right now all across the world is rising up <sighs> is incredible. Oh, yeah. And so a lot of the work that I do around youth empowerment is really just encouraging adults to show up and, and listen to, to youth and to answer to their leadership. <laughs> yeah, which is difficult for <laughs> older, older, elder generations to do because there seems like there's always been a, a one way direction of, of wisdom and instruction. Yeah. In, at least that, that I know I received as a kid it was like, respect your elders, listen to what older people tell you to do. Mm -hmm. And I know that indigenous peoples don't hold it that way. There's so much yeah. wisdom and and information to be accessed for because you know I, I do a lot of work with with the medicine wheel and mm -hmm. they say life begins where the sun rises in the east yeah. and then you walk all the way around the wheel and it ends back in the east after going through elderhood. So mm -hmm. the elders and the babies, the newborns, are the ones closest to the spirit world. Yeah. They're the ones who basically overlap with that spirit world. So there's so much information there. And you look at what some of these children are coming into the world saying and speaking and, and uh, standing for, and it's incredible. It's incredible. There's, there's no explanation for it other than, for me at least, other than spirit, that mm. there's something animating and moving them. And they're just, they're just not filtering it. <laughs> they're just letting it flow out in that beautiful way that children do. Mm. It actually makes me think back to where we started this conversation, you know, the difference between a boy and a man. Mm. And we talked about a man has the ability to respond, to be choiceful and direct and precise. 
And I think the gift, one of the gifts of boys, that boy inside of us is to speak in an unfiltered, unabashed fashion. Just mm. this is what I see and this is what it is. And I think too often we try to to dampen that, mm. you know, to to block it. And so I'm, I'm glad that you also speak on behalf of the children because I didn't ask you, are you a father? I am. I have a five-year-old daughter. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I, I figured you did, man. It's, it's something about dads. <laughs> when you become a father, you just have a little bit of a elevated sense of responsibility, I think. Mm-hmm. just no, Especially if you're conscious of the environment, there's no way you can ignore that our kids are going to experience the planet in a different way than we ever will Mm -hmm. in their lifetime. So for me, at least, it kind of amplifies the purpose and the mission at hand. Mm -hmm. I wanted to pivot the conversation slightly into Mm -hmm. another facet of relationship, especially on your journey, has been relationship with elders, leaders, especially in tribal and indigenous communities. And as a a Caucasian man, I know you said you have Armenian background. I don't know what, Mm -hmm. what other ethnic backgrounds you have. But I know that that's that's an edge for a lot of people mm-hmm. because of the because of history and what white men, Caucasian humans have have done to people who, who have been sovereign people of this land for millennia. Mm-hmm. And I know there's a lot of people who don't feel welcome to approach those communities or connect with those communities because of that. So I thought we could open up that conversation and see what that's been like for you since you're so connected at this point. Mm, thank you. It's good to talk about, you know, it, I think it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity right now. So much is in flux. The paradigm is shifting, it seems, so quickly in our world and in our society. And things get really messy when paradigms shift, you know, in a lot of old ways and ways that no longer serve us traditions that no longer serve us, people tend to cling to them when the paradigm is shifting. And then I've come to understand that part of paradigm shift also is enough people just stepping boldly into the new paradigm and talking about it and and actualizing it and saying, no, this is is the world. This is the way we're going to do it. This is the way we see it. And there is so much reckoning for white folks to do in the United States. The two huge crimes that founded the basis of our society. As Noam Chomsky puts it, genocide of native people and slavery, these are the two huge crimes that form the basis of our society. They're very much still a part of the structure of our society. They're not in the past. And so it's interesting because, you know, being socialized as a white person, a lot of us think, well, racial justice is something that people who are black and brown do. You know, they stand for racial Mm. justice, but really it's white folks that need to do the heavy lifting of dismantling these systems of oppression. We're the ones that are least affected and most advantaged by them. And it's a it's a process of discernment that can be painful, but that is very clear once you go through it. And if you listen and if you're able to show up and part of that is building your capacity to show up. There's a real tendency in myself and and many white folks and in those of us socialized white to get uncomfortable, defensive, to make it personal instead of structural, to be like, I identify as an ally. I'm not a racist person, so it's cool. Mm. But really, I'm born into power and access as a white person that I didn't have to earn. And that's, that's structural racism. That's part of structural racism. And I didn't choose to be advantaged, but I recognize that I am. And, you know, my ancestors from Armenia fled a genocide to, to settle in the United States. Part of this amazing cultural tradition of extremely resilient people who have a very deep history and amazing ethnic traditions. And I'm basically a white person. And obviously whiteness, race is a construct, right? Like 
all of us who are white people by race have these rich tapestries of our ancestry and we have access to these ancestors from all over, you know, that are being robbed of us through the racial construct that we're born into. And so this Mm -hmm. invention of whiteness, it's in our best interest to dismantle it for our own liberation of ourselves to be connected with our ancestors. And I've also come to understand that sort of colorblind theory, this idea, oh, I don't see race. It's not actually helpful. And it's also not really true. Like we do see race, our society sees race, and we should see race, you know, that is going to inform the way that we show up. And so Mm. for me, it has been a long period of building trust and learning to not take things personally to explain. I think part of whiteness is wanting to control things and fix things. And the white savior complex is embedded in so many of us. And it's also, there's, there's a sense of good intentions there too, of wanting to accelerate this healing process and want to like uh, atone for the, for the crimes of our ancestors and, and the ways that things were and still are, but also, you know, the, the horrors of our history to really fix it. And the best way to, to show up is to not be in a rush to control it and fix it, but to really answer to leadership of color, to Native leadership. A lot of Native people don't identify as people of color because that's a construct of the United States of America and sovereign, you know, tribal nations have their own reality, right? So that's an right. interesting that I've learned too. Some Native people do identify as people of color or POC and, and others don't. But really developing my capacity to really show up and listen. I identify as a recovering colonizer because I've really learned that a lot of my tendencies have been perpetuating colonization and Mm. gentrification is a form of colonization. It's a form of, of continued violence, pushing people out of their their neighborhoods in the name of generally progress that doesn't benefit everyone. Yeah. And there's so much to talk about here. You know, there's so much to talk about (laughs) here, but I've learned that I'm striving to be an accomplice. So it's, it's more than just being an ally. It's being born into more power and access means that I have the, the privilege of choosing what type of activism. So even in in terms of water, you know, I can choose, well, I want to stand up for the Osable river because I love fishing in it or I love canoeing in it. While people in Detroit, they have their water shut off. They don't have that privilege. And this is a black majority community. A lot of environmental justice, frontline environmental justice leaders are in life and death situations standing up for their people. And and these Mm -hmm. are the voices to listen to when we want to work for the environment and for racial justice at the same time. And, And these things are intersectional. And I've come to understand that they're not siloed. They're not separate. If we want peace, we have to work for justice. If we want healing, we work for justice. And there's so much. The the wonderful thing to remember for me is that the earth supports me in this work. Like when my body gets tense, when my breathing gets tight, when my shoulders get tight, the earth is supporting me. Gravity is supporting me. My ancestors are supporting me. And that it's infinite potential for healing. And the times that we're living in are just ripe with potential for healing. And this cultural healing white folks can engage in and and really call in other white folks to engage in is really a long time coming. It's really beautiful and powerful and it's a learning process and we're going to make some mistakes. And, And one of the biggest areas that I've noticed myself making mistakes is having good intentions, but actually having a negative impact with things that I do and say in native communities or communities of color. 
And that's part of the learning process of, of cultural sensitivity and cultural humility, yeah. which is another part of that yeah. boy and man thing. It's like a man goes through enough experiences to be, to be able to welcome the slaying of his ego and to know that humility and, and godliness are really close together. Yes. Yes, man. So I'm, I really appreciate the way you spoke about the intersection of injustices mm. and, and really the overlapping of injustices that it's number one, it's mm-hmm. systemic and deliberate. And number mm-hmm. two, they're not separate. They're not separate projects. They are one in the same, yeah. for lack of a better term. The fight for life yeah. is the fight for all of these things, you know, mm-hmm. really standing on behalf of all racial equality, economic equality, everything, all of it. And the thing, what I always come back to in terms of keeping it simple is two things, reverence and curiosity. Back yeah. to that cu- word curiosity that yeah. I love because I have the fortune of having an appearance that makes me a little bit less threatening mm-hmm. to people of color. My dad's family's Japanese. My mom's family's Italian. Mm. Half the time people think I'm Latino. Half the time people think I'm native. Mm. And it, it, so in my experience, people have been a little less armed when, when I, when I approach mm-hmm. and still my, the greatest assets I've come to the table with are my reverence, my honoring of sacred ways and sacred wisdom and people who know more than I do and a willingness to learn. Mm. And that, that, that same thing, that curiosity to, to be curious, not to come in with knowing or expectation, but just I'm here, mm-hmm. I'm here to listen. I'm here to help. I'm here to be of service in whatever capacity that I can. So I think that's a great access point for mm-hmm. anybody, what, regardless of where you're approaching building relationship and connecting to people who have something that you're interested or curious about, but don't know how to ask for it is to, like you said, show up, be of service, be curious, be honoring. And 99% of the time it has a great outcome because mm-hmm. that's how, that's what I've seen indigenous cultures and societies do with each other. Like you said, most of them, they don't identify with a color. They don't identify with a lot of the indicators or differentiators that colonial nations have created. But it's, what clan do you come from? Mm-hmm. Tell me about your ancestors. What were your ancestors' names? What did they, what did they do with their lives? What, are you one of the people that comes from the water or are you a mountain people? It's a different dialogue, a different way of appreciating our, our similarities and differences so that we can connect and relate. Mm-hmm. So I, I hear a lot of that in, in your story, man. And mm-hmm. I, even just the way you speak about what you're passionate about, I can tell you approach it with a great deal of reverence and curiosity. Mm-hmm. And so thank you for being that example. Oh, thank, thank you for you. being that example and, and invitation for people to step in as well. Because obviously we need more than just each other <laughs> we mean we need all of us really <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> and you know indigenous people they have such incredible traditions you know and, and experience community in such a, a way that feels familiar and, and relieving to me i feel so accepted by so many native communities relatively quickly and, and part of it is that it is relatively rare for people to show up who are white and are, are maybe just a little bit nervous that they're going to screw up or, or that they're not going to get it right and that the, maybe the chasm is too big to, to try mm-hmm. to bridge or that they're not wanted. But really, mm-hmm. um, you know, every U.S. citizen holds treaties with sovereign tribes and we have to breathe life into those treaties. So that's a responsibility that everyone has, whether or not they're actually regularly hanging out with with native folks or being a part of cultural 
celebrations with indigenous people. That said, you know, going to a powwow is just a wonderful way to experience indigenous culture. Oh yeah. And just, just to show up and check it out. And they're very, very inclusive and beautiful and vibrant. And you, you end up meeting a lot of really cool people. And again, with activism too, especially really important activism that doesn't make mainstream news. It's there's just filled with indigenous people who are mm-hmm. finding really beautiful, vibrant ways to come together to stand up for the earth and to connect with one another. Yeah. I love that, man. I appreciate everything that you shared. Mm. I told you time was going to fly by and oh, here we are. Sure we to, uh, <laughs> so I, I mean, we could, I know we could go on for hours here, uh, but I would like to ask you some lightning style round style questions before you give us mm-hmm. a place where we can find you and support you and your efforts. So you ready for the lightning round? Let's do it. <laughs> All right. What is one thing you've learned in your life you wish you knew when you were 18? Oh, wow. Yeah, it's supposed to be lightning. I'm going to say that sobriety is super cool. <laughs> good one, man. That's really good. No explanation necessary. And, and what do you think is the most important value to have as a man? I think the fundamental value is valuing your, yourself in your life. Mm, awesome, man. And last but not least, where can we find you, follow you, support your efforts, get on board with some of the amazing things that you're doing? Hit us with all the links, socials, anything that you want us to check out. Awesome. Awesome. The other thing that came into my mind with valuing is valuing the divine feminine. You know, I think that that's such a huge, I would feel remiss not to mention that. And so much of what I am grateful for has to do with the blessings of women in my life. Mm-hmm. And I continue to, to try to show up to dismantle the patriarchy, patriarchal yeah. systems that depress women and, and the divine feminine, which is a part of every man too. You know, just want to mention that. And thank you, Jetty. People can find me. So Earthwork Music is the uh, musicians collective that I founded in 2001, earthworkmusic.com. Title Track is the nonprofit that I started. We work in clean water, racial equity, and youth empowerment. It's titletrackmichigan.org. My full name is Samuel Seth Bernard. You can go to samuelsethbernard.com and find information about where I'll be. I do a deep winter men's retreat in Northern Michigan. So if anyone's interested in checking that out, it's a yearly thing at the Neotawanta Inn, which is on Old Mission Peninsula in Northern Michigan. And it's in the tradition of my mentor, Jeffrey Duvall, who uh, hosted a lot of men's retreats that I grew up around and went to through the Men's Leadership Alliance and on his own. And then also Bob Russell, who is a late mentor of mine who did a lot of work around resilience. So we work around personal resilience and creating community resilience. Awesome, man. And where can we find out more information about that? Is that on your website as well? The retreat? Uh, yeah, the, this year's retreat is actually going to get announced around the full moon in November. Again, it's a yearly thing. So reach out, drop me a line. It's a, it's a wonderful thing that you're doing here and, and just a lot, of, a lot of love and encouragement to all the men out there doing your work doing the work through your work in your hearts and in your communities beautiful i perceive that man likewise keep up the the good work that you're doing out there i could tell that you do it with an open heart and a lot of love you just got that look in your eyes i know people can't see you right now but you got that look in your eyes mm. of a man who who loves what he's doing on this planet so thank you, you thank too, you man, Jetty. For- i see that in your eyes too and the, the fire in your soul beautiful brother well uh We'll have to have you on in the future again. Uh, Until next time, man, just keep up what you're doing and I look forward to tracking your journey as you go. Thank you. Likewise. Blessings, man. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Seth is a man who carries medicine very near and dear to my heart. 
being one who advocates for and stands for clean water and education for the next generation. Just an amazing man with many talents that I hope you got to access some of his wisdom and really appreciate where this man is coming from. He's living his life in a good way as a father, as a performer, as a message carrier, message bearer, and water protector. And just grateful that we got to have him on the show. Honored, in fact, to have him here. Make sure you guys sign up for our Rising Man Fire Circles so that you can start off your 2020 right with accountability with men in your corner. And if you want to join us for our rite of passage out in the desert compass, then you got to get yourself signed up because there's only three seats left and they may already be gone by the time you hear this but don't worry we're going to be doing one in october as well but make sure you go and sign up over at risingman.org initiations check out the show notes for links and resources at risingman.org wherever you're listening to us please subscribe and follow us so that you get instant notifications every time we drop that rising man magic for you if you want to drop some messages drop some comments you can do so anywhere that we're posting our content but especially at risingman.org we love hearing your feedback on the episode I do. I know I do. I really appreciate what you guys have to say. Make sure you guys also check us out on Instagram at Rising Man Movement and our YouTube channel, which all of you guys helped us reach over 100 subscribers finally. So we have our custom URL. It is youtube.com slash the Rising Man Movement. Bookmark it. Put on those notifications so you get those Monday morning meditation videos every time we drop them and all the other content that's going to be coming at you this year in 2020. Shout out to Sean Offenbach, Rowan Tyne, Julian Subic, and Mark Rose. My power team holding it down. I appreciate y'all so much. You know it. Until next time, rise up and claim your destiny.